Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 6. Esther, chapter 6, not 5, 6. Tell you what, I love interruptions, especially in our church service, as long as they don't go for too long. Because when reading scripture, you'll find that our God is a God of interruptions. That he finds things that are going a certain way, and instead of letting them just go that way, he, he interferes and intervenes and sets his plan in motion uh, and it sort of uh, uh, hijacks the plan, if you will. And so interruptions are not a bad thing. Interruptions are a sign that you're still alive and that you still have life in you. If you have a church with no interruptions, just maybe you have a dead church. Just, uh, that's all I'm saying. So when a baby starts crying or something like that, it's a sign that there is life in the church. And we like that, right? Amen. All right, so Esther, this is the story about how Jesus is greater than anything that we could possibly imagine in our lives. So over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this, that Jesus is a greater king, Jesus has a greater way, Jesus is is a greater bride, Jesus died a greater death, Jesus is a greater mediator, Jesus gives a greater identity, and two weeks ago we looked at Jesus gives a greater joy. Last week we looked at the story of Haman uh, going home after he feasted with his, uh, with his king and with his queen. He was the only one invited to the banquet. He leaves the banquet and as he's going he sees, he sees Mordecai sitting off to the side. Mordecai doesn't rise, he doesn't bow, he doesn't acknowledge Haman. And Haman concentrates on that one thing that has gone wrong and he goes home and his wife gives him some incredibly bad advice. Uh, and, and he bases his joy, his happiness in things that are finite, not in things that are infinite. So last week we looked that uh, Jesus gives us a greater joy. And so this week, what we're going to be looking at here in chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, and so this is what scripture says to us. So this is Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read aloud before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who were sought to lay hands on King Asarius, who is King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. (laughs) I like this story. Um, I really like this story. Uh, We'll we'll get to to the real reason why. Um, Sometimes in life, there is going to be the visible hand of God affecting events. And sometimes that hand is invisible. Sometimes you see very clearly, um, you'll go to church, you'll hear a sermon on a certain subject, and someone will walk up to you and say something about a sermon, certain subject. 
and then someone's going to uh, bring something to you and it's going to draw your attention to that subject. And you can see sort of this laid out plan like, oh, the Holy Spirit's actually moving and doing his thing. It's actually happening step by step. Uh, and a lot of times that's how God works. But sometimes over in this other box, which is a little more stressful for us as humans, if we can be honest, God moves through the invis his invisible hand. You can't see it happening, uh, but when you step back after the event, you can look back and hindsight is 2020. It was God working. So uh, let me give you a, just a little bit of example of this before we, we move on. Um, this week is Moves Week in the Salvation Army. Uh, for those that don't have experience with the Salvation Army, uh, once a year, uh, me sitting in my office, I could get a phone call from my boss that says you're either staying in Bellingham for another year or you're moving on to a new appointment. I've got no control over it. I sit there, I pray. I'm not going to tell you what I prayed for, but I sat there and I prayed. I'm joking. I prayed that I would stay. Uh, and the entire Monday goes past with no phone calls. And you're like, okay, okay, one day down. And then you get to Tuesday and you spend an entire day in fasting and in prayer. You put on the sackcloth and ashes and again, you wait to make sure that cell phone isn't going to vibrate with the caller ID. This is Bill Dickinson calling. Doesn't happen, right? And then you, you make it through Tuesday and you're almost there. However, Wednesday morning, you can still get a phone call up until about one o'clock when moves become official. Uh, normally they, they, they hit you up before then, but sometimes you can get that phone call on Wednesday morning and you're sitting there sort of, at this point, you still love Jesus, you still believe in his providence, but you've got your fingers and toes crossed and, and you're doing all, you're knocking on wood, you're doing everything that you can possibly do to make sure that that cell phone doesn't light up. Two years ago, I was in the second year of my appointment in Longview. Uh, we had been guaranteed that we were going to be there for at least five years. We were told, we, we want you to mold this appointment, we want you to shape it, get it out of where it is, and move it towards something new and greater. And so uh, we, we were confident that nothing was happening. And so we actually took vacation over Moves Week. And so we were driving back from Spokane to Longview. Uh, my wife is driving. My sister-in-law is in the front seat and took her with, her, uh, with us because we thought that was a good idea um, because we didn't think that this phone call was happening. And I'm sitting in the back seat and uh, I'm sitting there. As you know, I, I play games on my phone all the time. I'm on my phone, I'm having fun. And suddenly it starts vibrating and the caller ID says Bill Dickinson. Between you and me, and whoever's watching on Facebook, I may or may not have sworn. Okay? I went to the altar the next Sunday and confessed my sin, and Jesus forgives me, so you can't judge me. But I said something harsh when I saw that display. Because I have a plan. I have, this is the way it's going to go. This is, I've got a vision. I've just started this, we've just started that. Uh, youth programming is taking off. We've got 40 kids coming to troops. We've got this happening, this happening. The place is good. It's, it's, it's moving forward. And this little... I answer the phone. Yellow. Because that's how I answer the phone. It doesn't matter who's on the other end. I answer the phone. Yellow. Or Bernardo can tell you, sometimes I use fancier words than that. Sometimes I get my, uh, my Spanish on. Hola which is the, pretty much the only Spanish that I know, which is a little bit of a travesty. However, that's neither here nor there. Sorry, I'm still on Indianapolis time. I'm jet-lagged, so this is going to be a whole different type of sermon than you're used to. 
Um, I'm just going to tell stories. Uh, and so, and so I, I get this phone call, and it is, uh, it's Major Bill Dickinson, and he says, uh, at the time, uh, Lieutenant, um, I know we said that you were going to stay here. However, uh, with the change of leadership at DHQ, we feel that the Holy Spirit is moving us to move you to a new location. And he said, uh, we're, you know, we're going to move you to Bellingham, Washington. And I said, thank you, sir. Uh, good to know. When's it official? In a, in, a, in a day. All right, so I've got a day to tell everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. And I, and I hung up. First thing, Bellingham, Washington. I don't know where it is. Are you kidding me? I've never heard of Bellingham, Washington. Second, second thing you Google. Starbucks, Bellingham, Washington. Just saying... Because otherwise I might hit the redial and say, sorry, no Starbucks, no going. I'm just saying I could do, I, I mean, I'll, he would just say he would laugh at me and then hang up, but I would do it. There was so much that we wanted to stay in Longview for. Uh, one of the things is we were close to Nikki's uh, dad. Uh, we were close to, close to Tom. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting him. He comes up for Christmas and volunteers for us. We were, we were just a, an hour away and that was a huge blessing for my wife, uh, and, and suddenly we're moving to this place. It's on the other side of Seattle. Olympia is still relatively close, but it's still two and a half, maybe three hours away. So if, if an emergency happens with her dad, wh- who's going to get there? What's going to happen? And so suddenly these sort of doubts and, 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 and hesitations start creeping in. You know it's the will of God. You know that the providence of God is going to take care of you. You know that it's in his perfect plan. But the humanness, the, the, the human side of us still has those questions that are sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And now when I look back uh, on the move to Bellingham, I can see the hand of God clearly in the work. While it was happening, I couldn't see it going on. Um, about six months before that particular move, uh, my father, who is part of the Northwest Brass and Chorus, when he shows up with his tuba, uh, he was also part of the Spokane Divisional, uh, the Spokane Band, even though he lived in Olympia. We don't know how this happens. Uh, he was also part of the Cascade Band, which, again, he lives in Olympia. Don't ask how this happens. But while he was in Spokane on the Spokane Band trip, he tr- road trip from Spokane down to, I think it was San Francisco, uh, with a friend of mine, a guy named Ken. Uh, Ken Karousey, who was a session mate of mine. And for some reason that I still can't figure out today, Ken fell in love with my dad. He loves uh, uh, my father-in-law. He loves him. Uh, For some reason, my father-in-law loves Ken. They're completely opposite personalities. However, it just works. And at the same time that we received the phone call to go to Bellingham and we start getting worried about who's going to be there to take care of my father-in-law if anything happens, uh, Ken Karousey gets a phone call. He's the assistant officer in Spokane, and he's getting moved to Centralia, which is even closer to Olympia than Longview was. And so when something happens with my dad, you know who steps in? Uh, My buddy Ken. Uh, Ken doesn't know how much I I appreciate his relationship with my father-in-law. And and all this to say, it's it's a long story. I don't normally tell stories, but today it felt appropriate. Is sometimes you don't see the visible hand of God moving in the instant. And it can fill you with a lot of fear, a lot of nerves, and a lot of hesitation. But sometimes when you step back and you look back and you have the benefit of hindsight, you can clearly see the providence of God, his hand moving in your life. 
And sometimes, just sometimes, God asks us deliberately to trust him, to say, I've got this, don't worry. And he's not going to show you his visible hand. His invisible hand is instead going to move. Amen? We've, We've gone over this before. In the book of Esther, God's name is never uttered. There's not a single prayer to God. Uh, An angel doesn't show up. A prophet doesn't show up. God is not in the text of this book. What God is present is in his invisible hand of providence in this book. You can't see God actively doing something. He's not mentioned. He's not prayed to. uh, He's not given any sort of stature in this book. But when you look back in hindsight, you can see God moving through this book. And sometimes it's the exact same way with our lives. Uh, Sometimes it's when you step back and step away from a situation, that's when you see God moving. Amen? And so, like I just said, he works through the book of Esther, through providence. The other day here in Bellingham, there was a storm, and you could see, uh, you could sort of hear the wind howling, I'm not sure if you've ever been uh, alone at night, you know, window creaked just a little bit, and suddenly that howling starts coming through, and you're like, you know, I believe in Jesus, but are we being haunted right now? Like, you know, you get that little moment. I'm not the only ones, right? That You get those little moments. Now, for those that think I'm not a Christian, uh, in the book of Samuel, uh, the king actually seeks the guidance of a witch, and that witch summons a ghost. They exist. They're in scripture. You can argue with me later if you don't believe me. So it's not an unrealistic or unreligious point of view to take, maybe my house is haunted, even though it's only six years old and was built from scratch. Like, it could be. I don't know. It could be. Um, and so, uh, this, the wind was howling, and when you look outside, you could see these trees bending. You could see the leaves blowing. Uh, you could see all this stuff, but you know what you couldn't see? You couldn't see the wind itself. You could see its effects. You could hear it. And that's what God's invisible hand of providence is like. You don't see it, but you see its effects. And when we look at scripture, that's what I'm talking about when I say the providence of God, specifically the story of Esther. Now, Haman, he's, uh, he's in this mood, right? He's, uh, he's just had this, uh, this, this dinner with the king, King Xerxes and Esther. Everything's going well for him. He steps outside. He sees uh, Mordecai by the gate. He gets ticked off that Mordecai doesn't bow to him. And so he goes home, starts plotting revenge with his wife. His wife says to him, you know what? Just build a gallows 50 feet high into the air so everyone can see him. We're going to hang. Uh, we're going to kill uh, Mordecai. We're going to put him out uh, in a high place so that everyone can see what happens when you, when you disobey uh, Haman. Uh, that fills Haman in a good mood. So Haman gets himself down to the king's chamber because he's going to ask for the death of Mordecai. He's going to ask it. This is his big favor. The king likes me. You know, sometimes you're in this situation, right? Uh, Your boss, everything's going well with your boss. You score a couple of goals, and suddenly you think, hmm, I really want that new XYZ. Maybe it's a desk. Maybe it's a chair. I really want that new thing. I'm going to spend some of my capital with my boss on on asking for this. So Haman goes in to the king's presence uh, as the number two man in the kingdom, and he says, all right, king, this is what I want to do. No idea what that slide's about. Here we go. However, however, the king has one of those nights that I'm going to guess if you're human, you have had one of these nights before. One of the nights when you just can't sleep. 
One of the nights when you've got a million and one things on your brain and every time you solve something in your head, something else pops in instead. Have, have you had this? Am I alone at this? No, some nodback, some feedback. Come on, guys. Like, I'm still in Indianapolis time. I'm three hours behind. I've had four cups of coffee and I'm like, I need feedback right now or this is going for a long time, okay? Look, don't make me yell, because I will, because I've got a great outside air voice, Major Beaver. I do. I can yell if I have to. So give me some feedback. Give me some have you ever stayed up late at night wondering about the nature of the universe? Right. Watch it, you. Don't make me come down there. The king has an empire that spans the entire uh, uh, size cumulative of the United States of America. He rules the entire known world except for Greece, which is a sore subject. Don't ask him about him, he'll get testy. Uh, but he rules everything. Do you think he might have had one or two things on his mind when he tries to sleep? Maybe. And so, uh, as you do when you can't sleep, you, you read a book. You get up, you read a book, you try and do something. Now, because he's the king, he doesn't do such things like reading himself. He pays someone to do that for him, which is a nice gig if you can get it. And so he pays this guy to bring him the book of the annals of history. This is everything in Persia that has ever happened has been written down in this book. Everything that the king has ever done, all of his victories, everything that has happened that is important in the life of the king has been written down in this book. And they happen to, just happen to, turn to the page of Mordecai. Now, we remember this from uh, a couple of months ago. Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate because Mordecai was just doing what Mordecai does, which, if you read Esther, is pretty much just sitting in the king's gate. That's all Mordecai really does for most of this book. And so he's sitting there, and he overhears, a, uh, a, overhears two eunuchs who are angry with the king. Right? These two eunuchs, they have a, a, a couple of issues with the king, um, and he's, he really wants to, they, they, they want to kill him. And so Mordecai overhears this, and he's like, well, I should really do something about that. It means getting up from the king's gate, but fine. So he goes and tells someone, and this is recorded in this book, and so uh, these guys, when the king is sleepless, they happen to, just happen to turn to the page that records, uh, records Mordecai just happening to overhear this one particular event. And so you're starting to see this invisible hand of God that put Mordecai in the right place, who put the two eunuchs in the right place, who then uh, inspired the king to write it down in the right place so that when the Holy Spirit kept the king up at night, he was then able to turn just happily to the right place to read this story. When you read it just by itself, it doesn't look like, but, but, like much, but when you read it from the perspective of the providence of God, you can see God clearly moving invisibly, which is ironic because you can't see things moving that are invisible. No one else had a problem with that? No? Okay, fine. Fine. So Haman came in and the king said to him, <laughs> this is my favorite part of the story, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> Be careful about pride. Scripture says that pride goes before a fall. You need to be careful about pride, especially as Christians. Because there is a mindset that we can develop that as Christians, what's going to happen is because I'm saved, because God loves me, I must be special. And you are special. 
but not in that way. You're special in a different way. God loves you. God sent his only son to die for you. That is great, and, and you can be happy and joyful in that, but you shouldn't be prideful because you did nothing for that. Haman, among his many other sins, is incredibly prideful. Incredibly prideful. He hears the king saying, man, I want to honor a person. I want to uh, give blessing to this person. I want everyone to know how great this person is. And Haman's mind straight away goes to, well, that's got to be me. Right? Now, it wasn't. Spoiler alert. It wasn't him. But Haman, thinking that it was him, said this. Uh, and Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officers. Let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Haman says to himself, if the king is going to honor me, let me give the king advice for the things that I want. I want to be put on a horse. I want a robe draped around me. I want a crown on my head. And I want officials to go before me, declaring my awesomeness to the world. Yes, it wasn't him. Okay? It wasn't Haman that the king wanted to honor. But the question is, have you ever done this? Be self-reflective. Have you ever thought yourself more worthy than you were? Have you ever tried to puff yourself up in a situation where you shouldn't? Have you ever tried to uh, sort of uh, wiggle and, and jam events of your life into, the, into uh, such a way that you would be elevated? This is all that Haman is about. Haman is about the next promotion. He's about the next big thing. Now, you've got to hear me when I say this. Achievement isn't bad. Getting a promotion at work isn't bad. It's not sinful. But when that thing, uh, when that promotion, when that achievement becomes the most important thing in your life and all of your life is built around that one thing, then it becomes sinful. Haman has built his entire life around this one thing. Get ahead. Get a better appointment. Get a better uh, people on, you know, have more people underneath me. Have more money than everyone else. Have more stature than everything else. Everything is built around this. Have the most beautiful wife in the city. Have the most spacious house in the city. Let's just have everyone look at me and honor me. And so when the king asks him, what shall we do to the man that the, the king delights to honor? His entire intention goes to this straightaway, this thought, I should be honored more than anyone else. And I want to ride the horse. I want the crown. I want the robe. I want the crowds to bow down before me. Haman looks at the king, who, and, and the king already thinks that he is a god. Haman looks at the king and he's trying to model that behavior. And here's where you need, you need to be careful. As a Christian, the only person's behavior that you should be modeling is Jesus Christ. If you look around and you say, I'm trying to model the behavior of this person, I'm trying to model the behavior of that person, if there is a preacher or a pastor that you are fond of and that you listen to and you try and model your behavior after them, or if there's a person in your family that you look up to and you try and model your behavior after them, that will lead to sin eventually. And so as a Christian, you need to model your behavior after Jesus Christ. You need to model your behavior after His in Scripture. When Jesus said, let the little children come to me, 
when Jesus said, let the lowliest come to me, when Jesus had lunch and dinner and food with sinners and prostitutes, when he went to the lowest of the lowest in society and he said, let's hang out with these people. Jesus didn't try and get the best seat at the banquet. He didn't try and get the head of the table. He didn't try and get himself a crown and a powerful horse. Instead of that, when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey. And instead of a gold crown, he wore a crown of thorns. He was disgraced in every way that you can possibly imagine. Be like Jesus. Don't be like Haman. Ridiculous man. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and this horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Mordecai's over here again. He's sitting at the king's gate. Watch that. It's all he ever does. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (laughs) So Haman took the robes and the horse. Now, it doesn't say this in Scripture. But I can imagine that as Haman is doing this, he is muttering to himself the entire way. Don't you? Take the horse, I said. Why did I say the horse? Put the robe, I said. Why did I do this? I don't want to do this. Have you ever gone through those periods where you've bargained with yourself or you've made commentary? To I do it all the time. Like, I'm, I, I, you know, I make a bad joke up here. Uh, I spend the rest of my afternoon. Oh, man, that joke fell flat. Why did I tell that joke? That, I thought it was funny, but clearly these people need a sense of humor. God, give them a sense of humor. Bless them with a sense of humor because, come on, that joke was funny. My goal is to make Carol laugh because it is hilarious to me. I'm not sure if you all can hear it, but sometimes Carol, who sits in this back room during the sermon, I just hear these little titters coming out, these little giggles. My goal, my goal is to get commentary from the back room. I mean, it's to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. However, one of my sub-goals is to hear these little commentaries from the side room because it's just delightful. It makes it for me. It really does. Like I said, God likes the distractions, right? He, he, he is a God of distractions and interference. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square, ah, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man. And again, can you imagine the tone of voice that Haman uses here? Can you imagine it? He's leading the horse. Deadpan. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Like clenched teeth. Can you imagine this? Haman's a real person. Mordecai is a real person. This is a real story. You have to imagine that Haman is reacting in a human way. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. By the way, that corner right there, that's the king's gate if you haven't picked it out. That's where Mordecai has been sitting for this entire book, and unless he's being led around on a horse. But Haman hurried into his house, mourning with his head covered. Have you ever got home from work after a really bad day and you've just headed straight to the bedroom, you've shut the door, you've cranked the radio and you've just dived under the covers and you said, no one talk to me for the rest of the day. If you've never done that, that's fine. I've done that. And, and church is a place where I can be real with you. I've done that. I've had some bad days where I just need some time. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it happens to be. I've had times when I just need to shut the door, crank the classical music, and be like, no one talk to me for a period of time, right? Have you never happened? Has this never happened? Like, do you all love Jesus a little bit more than I do? It's okay, but sometimes. Have you ever heard the expression hoisted on your own petard? It's an English expression. I, I'll forgive you if you don't know it. It means hung on your own, like, whatever. Carol, I got Carol, she's on board. Do you like a definition there, sir? Yeah, please, give me a definition. 
There you go. And if a member of a shipping crew decides that they're going to mess around, they got hoisted on the petard. There you go. It also has come to be known as an anatomical part that we won't discuss. <laughs> well, I didn't know about that. Yeah, this is, this is Haman. Haman hates Mordecai. He has a history with Mordecai's people, the Jews. He has a, uh, an ethnic bias already towards Mordecai. But then Mordecai sits at the king's gate day in, day out, rubbing it in Haman's face. He hates Mordecai with a fiery passion. He builds a 50-foot spike in the middle of his town square so that he can take Mordecai hoist him up and slam him on it and have everyone see what happens when you cross Haman. Haman is not a nice guy. He is, in, in fact, an evil guy. Mordecai is just lazy. We'll get to that later. Look, he spent six chapters sitting at the king's gate. I'm just saying. Mm. And Haman told his wife, Suresh, all the, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. I'm not sure. You know how sometimes when you have something drastic and terrible happen, you get to a point where the story becomes kind of funny? I'm not sure if he'd hit that point yet. Just saying. He told them all what had happened. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but surely you will fall before him. That is the wisest thing that his wife has said to this point. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Haman doesn't know it yet, but his life is about to take a real hard turn to the right. Before this chapter, everything had been going well, and he put his joy, and he put his faith and he put his happiness into his achievements rather in something greater. At this point in Scripture, chapter 6, this is taking a hard turn for Haman. And please hear me when I say this. Haman is an evil man. He is not the good guy of this story. He is, in fact, the bad guy, one of them, of this story. What you need to know except by the grace of God, you guys are Haman. You're not Mordecai in this story. Humans are Haman in this story. People who hang their hopes on temporal things. People who try and get saved through human things. People who don't trust in something greater than them. That is the human condition. Apart from the grace of God which saved us, we are Haman in this story. We're not Esther, we're not Mordecai, we're not the king, we're Haman. And I know what we want to do is insert ourselves into the hero role of this story, but that's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is to show Christ as the hero of the world and the saviour of the world. And so you don't get to be Christ in the stories. You get to be the bad guys in the stories because we are by nature. The book of Psalms says that there is not a single person on earth who is righteous. In fact, it says that God looked down from heaven from eternity, which means he can see past, present, and future at the children of man to see if there are any who are righteous. And he looked at earth and he could not find a single one. That's why he had to send Jesus. Because there wasn't a single righteous man or woman down on this planet. So he had to send Jesus. 
so that him who could become no sin could be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what scripture tells us. Friends, you, you're not Mordecai in the story, you're not Esther in the story, but by the grace of God, you are Haman. So you need to ask yourself, what are the things in this life that you were prideful about? Because that pride goes before a fall. Haman doesn't realize it. It's already started for him. His fall has started. He's going to a banquet where he thinks he is going to be proclaimed above all others. It's going to take a hard right for him real quick. Friends, what are you prideful about? What do you need to give to Jesus? The things that you are prideful in and for that you don't deserve to be prideful in and for. Give it to Jesus. Amen? The story is going to end real quick. Not next week. Next week's Mother's Day. And I'm not going to be here. Which means you don't get to know how the story ends for at least two weeks. Unless you read ahead. But I want you... I want you to take that last word. Prepared. I want you to be prepared. When Jesus shows up on the day... I want you to be prepared for his coming. Part of that preparedness is doing a hard analysis of our own lives, our own walks with Christ to find the things that we are prideful for that we have no reason to be prideful for. It happens. Pride sneaks in to the most humble of people. In fact, get this, some of the most humblest people are the most prideful because they're prideful about their humbleness. Like you've met these people. Oh, I'm more humble than anyone I know. Go sit with Mordecai. Right? Be careful. Don't be Haman. Don't follow his example. Follow the example of Christ. Orientate yourself to be like Jesus. There's a chorus in our songbook that says, to be like Jesus, this hope possesses me. It's a simple chorus, but that's it. That's the goal. That's the dream. To be like Jesus. Amen? We're going to close our time with a word of prayer before Lenore comes up to give us our closing benediction. But hear me pleading this for all the times that I joke about, for all the times that I tell ridiculous stories and, and all that stuff. Hear me when I say that this is the most important thing that I could tell you today. You need to be like Jesus. That's what you need to be. You need to look at Scripture. You need to see the example of Christ in Scripture. And you need to be like Jesus. Jesus. There are a few of you in this congregation who are the most like Jesus that I've ever had the privilege of meeting in my life. For you guys, God bless you. Because I, I find it difficult. I'm not standing up here saying I'm, I can be like Jesus 24-7 or that I find it easy or that I even am able to maintain that or, or, or hit that goal. A lot of the times I'm not like Jesus and I am not proud of those moments. But every day, start your day, can I be like Jesus today? How can I be like Jesus today? When the difficult things happen, how can I be like Jesus? How can I be like Jesus? Amen? Be like Jesus. Hear me say it, that you need to be like Jesus. And as we end our time together here, in a word of prayer, search your soul. To be like Jesus, this hope possesses me. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship your glorious name. Lord God, for every head bowed, I pray that we can be more like Jesus every minute of every day, that we can wake up and say, how can I be like Jesus today? Lord, lead me to be like Jesus today. Lord, we recognize that we can't be like Jesus without the infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I pray that you be with each one of us today as you infill us afresh with your Holy Spirit so that we can begin anew and fresh every day with the one goal, to be like Jesus. We pray this all in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.